0: RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Dr. Emmanuel E. Garcia is a Philadelphia-born writer, theatrical director, physician, retired psychiatrist, and a member of the Transcend Network for Peace Development. I did a, an online search Um into into Mr. Emmanuel E. Garcia. And the earliest story I could find relevant to what we're about to talk about is October 2021, 13th of October 2021, and it's from the Herald, and it says, a Wellington psychiatrist is promoting anti-vax views in multiple videos online, and the chair of one Lower Hutt mental health support service said the Hutt Valley District Health Board DHB employee has to go in the videos Shock, horror, consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Emmanuel Garcia said he was deeply concerned about the Pfizer vaccine rollout. Dr. Garcia joins us on Reality Check Radio. Welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you very much, Paul. And since we're being uh, uh, real here and we're into reality checks, uh, what is so uh, earth shattering by a doctor saying that he's deeply concerned about the rollout of an experimental, at that time, a, a really an experimental intervention that had not been tested by time, nor had undergone the protocols that really are necessary to ensure safety and efficacy. So urging caution, I think, is a pretty conservative
0: viewpoint. Yeah, there's nothing mm-hmm. controversial about that whatsoever. That's common sense, yeah. Dr. And I want to
1: say, too, that this person... So, so anyway, just as the regulatory, I... I resigned my position at the DHB. And in my past, I had been the clinical director of mental health services for Hutt Valley DHB for several years in the uh, mid to late 2000s, I think 2007, 2008, something along those lines. Okay. Uh, I also worked as a psychiatrist and when the DHBs combined, and I pioneered a sort of uh, primary care, primary practice liaison. So that, for example, I went out to, I had an office in Wainui at the Firewonga Medical Center where I saw patients in Wainui, saving them the trouble of going at, down to the hut and also kind of uh, normalizing care and not you know, separating psychiatry from all other medical care. And I love that work and that was great. Uh, however, I did resign and, that, uh, and I think it was October of 2021. And then uh, I intended to consider practicing in private practice And when my license came up for renewal, which would have been, should have been a formality, I was informed that my license had been suspended by the medical
0: Oh, okay.
1: So
0: so this is already taking on the familiar pattern that I've become used to in talking to people in in various sectors, but, you know, in health, that um, this sort of attitude of, uh, what would you call it?
1: Well, I first of all, that was that was really uh, uh, the suspension of a license for what? Uh, I, I was accused of practicing outside my scope of psychiatry by giving by having intelligent discussions about natural immunity, about prevention, about treatment, and about informed consent, basically. okay? I was critical of the government's approach. I didn't believe that a corona respiratory virus, could be eliminated, which was their goal. And by the way, I think I was proved correctly on that.
0: Yeah, I think you can safely say that.
1: Yeah, for saying things like this, I got my license suspended. I was one of three people at the time who had their licenses suspended. Uh, And then I decided I did not want to, I decided that the medical council was so thoroughly corrupt that I wanted no more part of that organization. And therefore, I didn't fight the suspension, but I... I extricated myself from this corrupt institution via equity law. It took a while to do that, but we did it. I never signed a gag order. When the protests against the mandates occurred at parliament, I gave many talks there. In fact, I was there the first day. I was there the day they hung the crosses up for the victims of the jab. Uh, And um, uh, I just spoke my mind and I continue to speak my mind and to write what I think are accurate things. What we've seen happen in medicine, Paul, I mean, this has been, I've got to say, I I was not prepared for this. this. We've seen the subversion of everything that we assumed were basic common sense principles of our profession. You know, we have this thing called the Hippocratic Oath, which says at first, do no harm, okay? We have this idea that treatment should be individualized. Not everybody can get the same kind of treatment, and a doctor's duty is to devise with the patient the appropriate mix of medicines, approaches, et cetera, for people. Uh, we know that uh, informed consent is a pillar of what we do. Let me give you an example. If I to say to you, Paul, I think you should be on risperidone.
0: It's good for you.
1: And then you say, well, what do you think? No, don't, don't even ask me any questions.
0: It's yeah, crazy. what is that? What does it do? And, and how does it work? And can it harm me, right?
1: Don't worry about it.
0: It'll be good.
1: Okay? And that's, well, that's really, a relief. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's a relief, right? Listen, just trust me. It's good. It's good for Not only good for you, it's good for everybody. In fact, give some to your kids while you're at it. We'll take care of the whole family. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Wouldn't? It's completely absurd. But in essence, that's what they're telling us about this this jab. And I don't wanna make the interview, the jab the center of the interview necessarily, but it represented in the government's push for this one intervention cures all, uh, one untested intervention cures all. It explains uh, a lot of, uh, or it reveals a lot of what was happening with respect to other questions that should have been asked about this, and about approaches to COVID, uh, and and all of the uh, measures that they implemented in response to COVID.
0: Um, given that you're a psychiatrist, I'm really interested in trying to sort of drill into the into the heads of well, these people, the, this group think, whatever you call it. You mentioned the word corruption before, in relation to the medical council. Yeah. Did that, in your assessment? going through what you've you've been through was that something that was sort of kind of instantaneous or has there been a build-up to this because it's hard for people to suddenly switch to such an extreme position isn't it
1: well that's a, actually that's a very astute question okay that's a very important question you're right things don't happen uh overnight unless it's the prime minister telling us to be locked down overnight but aside from that this, this, uh, this medical council that, is, that has as its duty sort of the protection of the citizenry of New Zealand, uh, I think they've been um, corrupt for a long time. Uh, their actions with respect to the coronavirus have demonstrated that corruption is very, very thorough. The absurd witch hunt they've conducted against any doctor, and there aren't that many who have come out publicly, Paul, I remember, by my count, there are 26 doctors now in the, who have been in the crosshairs of the Medical Council. That's a puny number of the what 18 to 20,000 registered doctors in New Zealand. Wow. Uh, okay, but they've made the they they've made it a point to go after people with absurd claims and complaints to detach riders to their licenses if they want the renewals. Riders like you can't prescribe ivermectin. Uh, uh, they've been attacking people for promoting vaccine hesitancy, for undermining the Pfizer inoculation, I mean, all these ridiculous kinds of things. In fact, there's one, one person, and I have to read this to you because I was shocked to hear this. She's a GP. She went to her local DHP. Her children are in a shared care arrangement, and she wanted to make sure that all medical procedures, including vaccination, needed both parents' approval. That was leveled as a criticism against her by the medical. What? Council. Yeah, um, uh, honestly, God. OK, the same doctor, she ordered labs on a patient whose daughter said was Vax injured. She, a GP made a point to make a complaint about that. I mean, if I had prescribed this medicine to you, right, Risperidone, right? Can and you tell me what develop, that
0: does? Because I have no idea, and uh, I, I so still agree to take it. <laughs> it's
1: an antipsychotic, an anti-psychotic mood-stabilizing agent. It's right, pretty, okay. like a, uh, you know, a state, uh, one of the usual medicines that we might prescribe in psychiatry. Anyway, if I would prescribe that to you, and a week later, you had a heart attack, you developed a blood clot or whatever, I guarantee you I, we would be looking at what caused that blood clot or that heart attack or whatever, and we should. Okay, because everything carries a risk and you better be prepared for these risks. And I would often say to patients when I prescribe any medicine, listen, I can't predict any adverse, any every possible adverse event. But if anything happens, let me know and we'll look at it. Usually this particular medicine, if I were to prescribe a particular medicine, has a good safety record. But, you know, everybody's different. Now, that's a, that's a reasonable, rational, mm. uh, approach. Okay. Totally. Uh, I had the example today, Paul, and, and actually this is a timely interview. One of the people who lives near me suffered a DVT, deep venous thrombosis, uh, went to the ER, the emergency department, was actually sent home, and I think quite wrongly, with a hot calf, And then developed a pulmonary embolism, which required her to be rushed to the hospital for treatment. Pulmonary emboli can kill you. They're very serious. Okay. I can assure you she was fully jabbed with boosters and everything. Now, not once did anyone bring that particular issue up to her at all. They just told her the DBT kind of came out of nowhere. All right. So this is what this is the culture that we're having to live in, which subverts everything that I was taught and I was raised in in my medical education.
0: That that um that instance that you just described there, um, surely uh, these people, even if they're deluded, they're not kind of dumb, and they would have seen a prof- uh, a procession, I would imagine, um, uh, up to this point of people presenting with things that they're asking, how did I get this? Where did this come from? And they're not kind of answering. They must know. They must know. So therefore, it's it's some kind of conspiracy of of silence and, and not, I'm just processing this, and not telling the person or minimizing it or like sending them home, they could die. It's just, I just can't believe that.
1: Well, Paul, I think they do know, I think they must know And aside from that issue of being sent home, the hospitals now are crowded. The system is having a difficult time.
0: Is that as a result of what we're talking about? The numbers?
1: Well, I don't know. I I can't say that with any certainty, but I can tell you that the system is not doing well. All right? But if someone were to come in to see me with a complaint like this, I would look at all the possibilities for why something happened. And I would consider... You know, a variety of them. They could have been 15, 12, five or six different things going on. You have to consider that. The fact that an, an agent, that, that something like this is not even mentioned to a person as a possibility, is troubling. And I do think that these doctors, that doctors do know what's going on, that they're seeing these things. I hear a lot of reports about a lot of stuff happening all over the place. But I also think that they're afraid to say anything. They've probably been told not to say anything because, remember, one of the big issues here is you can't encourage, quote, unquote, vaccine. I use that word in quotes because it's not even a vaccine. You can't encourage vaccine hesitancy or caution or good sense without they're coming down on you. And this is what I describe as, like, this is a mafioso tactic, Paul.
0: Yeah, but, you know, there's there's a willingness in a way to, throw the patient under the bus could be uh, life-threatening. And that's, that's a hell of a stretch, isn't
1: it? <laughs> well, Paul, I, I, listen, let's get into the meat and bones of this. People, there was, there was a report recently there was excess mortality in New Zealand, okay, meaning people are dying in greater numbers than would be expected. I've had, I've had reports about, for example, strokes from uh, 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 people who have, uh, have, act, have had access to data showing that the uh, strokes have increased dramatically, for example, as has myocarditis uh, since the introduction of the jab. Uh, we have a lot of anecdotal reports. And remember, you know, people say, oh, anecdotal, that's just a story. Yeah, that's true. When you, when you get a lot of anything, you've got to investigate it
0: unless you've got something to hide unless you've got something to hide
1: speaking of which let's talk about what we hide medsafe actually did it did it was doing their job when the pfizer inoculation came up for approval and they said you know what we're not satisfied this is actually all that safe so we're gonna we have reservations about it well They sent that to a committee known as the Medicines Assessment Advisory Committee. This was in January 2021. And lo and behold, about five days later, that Medicines Assessment Advisory Committee comes back and says, everything's good. Go ahead, give it the approval. Now, there was nothing new, no new data emerged, nothing happened. But to me, that says the fix was in. And now... When we asked for the names of these people on that Medicines Assessment Advisory Committee, we were told via an OIA that uh, they don't want to release them because it might be, uh, it might be risky for the people involved.
0: What, well, physically risky?
1: Well, I, I, whatever they are, yeah. I had, I had, a, I had an email from uh, one of the people who did an OIA on that, and I forget the exact wording, but they are keeping those names uh, secret. Okay.
0: So we don't know who overrode MedSafe doing their job first up and could have caused untold harm, and we're not even allowed to know their names.
1: We're not even allowed to know their names. Now, there is another committee called the Medicines uh, uh, Adverse uh, Review Committee or uh, something like that, and I I believe that people in that committee were probably on the MAAC. Okay, but we don't know. We don't know for sure. Say that again we, on,
0: the, on the MAA what?
1: On the Medicines Assessment Advisory Committee. All oh, right. okay, yeah. That's yeah. a secret committee. So the Medicines Assessment Advisory Committee is a secret committee, okay? The Medicines Adverse Reporting Committee, MARC I think it's called, is not a secret committee, and you have the names of those people. And I would bet that people in that That committee, the adverse reporting committee, were on the MAAC, but I can't prove that indubitably.
0: That would be a conflict of interest, wouldn't it?
1: Well, Paul, I don't. I don't think that's even the right phrase. The fix was in. Someone said to Medsafe, "Cut it out with your caution and common sense. We've got to put this thing through, and we're going to." You said we're going to give you a rubber stamp and a direction.
0: Okay. I, I guess I'm just saying those things because I'm trying to come from the average person's common sense of, of what would uh, govern your behavior in these situations. You, and the reason I asked that is because, or mention that, is because you've got the approval arm and then you've got the assessment of injury arm and they're the same people.
1: <laughs> Go well, figure. I believe so. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's the whole—they're all working together. But medit—but the point is, Med Medsafe was doing their job initially, right? Until they were told, "Cut it out," and put this thing through by this committee, whose member. Now, if you are honest about something, if you have nothing to hide, there's no reason to hide anything. And that gets back to something even more important, more just as important, let's say, which is the agreement that Pfizer has with the New Zealand government. Do we have that agreement? Why isn't that agreement made public? That is the, you, that's the document to get. We tried to get that document through OIAs. We can't get it. Why isn't that agreement, if you've got nothing to hide, made public for everyone to see? What was the agreement with Pfizer?
0: Was there a, what was the reason given? Because I mean, we taxpayers are the ones paying the money, um, you know, should have a right to know in an open and free democracy. What was the reasoning for that? What commercial sensitivity or something like that, was it?
1: I think it was, some, I think it was something along those lines, but, uh, but I haven't seen that actual OIA response. However, I do know that many people have tried to get, we've been trying through lawyers uh, and, and individuals to get that document
0: unsuccessfully. Okay. Here's, here's a, a, a future reckoning. We'll get that eventually. Well, you know what, Paul,
1: we should get that. We're owed that. That's that's like the holy grail of all this, because I think that's also going to explain, given the fact that one of the Pfizer agreements with another country, I think it was Albania, was released, and we saw that there were stipulations about that that granted the uh, the company. Uh, Uh, Indemnity, you know, if anything happened, they couldn't be sued. That also uh, had stipulations about no other treatments being used while the injection was being used. So, this may explain why, in all of this uh, conundrum, you know, in all this difficulty we've had with coronavirus, COVID, whatever you want to call it, there's been virtually no emphasis on prevention and treatment. Okay, no one talked to. in fact I I wrote an email to uh, the infectious disease guy at my hospital and I mentioned treatments for people and he said, Oh, well, there's no evidence for anything. And so so the government's way to treat people who got COVID was you stay home, locked down. If you can't breathe, you go to hospital, and then you know, we could I guess we gotta see what happens. Where
0: there were therapeutics and things that could yeah. be done to circumvent that. And isn't it ironic that they've got an ivermectin shortage for the scabies outbreak in yeah. Christchurch now?
1: <laughs> exactly. They've been coming down on people getting ivermectin. I mean, there were treatments available. There was one exception. There was this organization in this Best Practice Advocacy, advocacy Center. And I think in February 2021, um, they sent out a bulletin to GPs. They're a, a nonprofit that advises GPs about best practice. And uh, yeah, in February 21, they talked about vitamin D supplementation. And I just learned about this this past week. So it wasn't widely known. And yeah, it was a good, good idea that they sh- we should consider giving patients vitamin D because the patients at risk, vitamin D, et cetera. Aside from that, that's the only thing I ever heard from any official source about actual treatment. And all the while, we do know that Dr. Zelenko in the States, for example, Dr. McCullough, Pierre Corey, uh, Didier Royal, uh, other people were using hydroxychloroquine, zinc, azithromycin, all kinds of combinations that were showing, I think, great efficacy.
0: Yeah, and uh, when you've got an emergency, uh, pandemic emergency, because that's how it was, couch promoted, um, pushed on the people like it was really urgent. You would throw the kitchen sink at an emergency. You would find everything that you could find, and you'd give it a go, or you consider it. Right? I mean, it's just not logical. That's exactly right.
1: You said it. Finally, you said it right. You would have the race for the cure. You'd have every Every smart person in the country saying, how can we stop this? How can we find how can we use uh, medicines or supplements that stop this thing in its tracks? You do everything you could. You protect the vulnerable and you don't lock up healthy people and impose these crazy measures on freedoms and liberties. And you don't use masks. And I want to get into the mask thing, Paul, because this is one of the most troubling aspects of the whole thing. Not only do they—they they don't work. They just don't work. We know okay? a yep. lot of kinds of studies I can show you. They don't work. I still see people with these masks. They use them improperly. They don't work, even if properly used. And yet they were pushed on people because I think that the use of masks was really the it was like the, the perfect propaganda tool.
0: I agree with you. Okay? Yeah, it's a demonstrative sort of a uh, performative act that uh, that transmits to the other citizens the behavior that you're trying to control right it 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 tells you it tells you everything you need to know about what they were thinking about let's say that's exactly right
1: and and it's a patent absurdity when you look when you would look at the people wearing the masks during the, the highly masked phases right they had them under their noses they'd be taking them on and off they wouldn't change them i mean it was all Demonstrably <laughs> absurd as well. Crazy. And yet they went through this charade, and i as I say, I still see people with these things walking around. I saw a psychiatrist the two or three weeks ago in the supermarket, uh, and I have to say, I just couldn't even bear to look at this guy. It was so ridiculous, you know.
0: I've been thinking about mask wearing, you know, observing it over the time, and the only complying that I've done is to get into the supermarket because I want food. I want to eat, but everything yeah. else um, I, I, I never complied with. And I did try taking it off in the supermarket once, but I kind of got hassled by a couple of um, of customers there. But I'm, I'm wondering if the, the mask also served, and you as a psychiatrist, I'm, I'm sure would have a view on this, served another purpose. And that is given the um, level of anxiety in modern day life that for a lot of people putting the mask on forget about you know trying to keep the bugs out but but sort of assuage that feeling of anxiety to some sort of level where they felt better and is there something in that well that's a good actually that's a
1: good point yeah i think that you might be right about that it gives people a visible tangible uh Sign that they're doing something and they're protecting. You see, the thing about the fact that, that the mask is the virus or the, whatever the thing is, the pathogen is much smaller than the holes in the mask. Okay. The mask leaks out no matter how, unless it's taped to your face and you, you can't breathe, it's going to leak out anyway. Nonetheless, even highly intelligent people still feel that it is a protection of some kind. It's a barrier. You, you put this in front of your face, it's a barrier. Forgetting about the fact that, as I say, it's like, a, it's like blocking mosquitoes with a chain-link fence, okay? So there is that, exactly. that issue about that mask thing. Um, but at the risk of turning people into uh, aardvarks, I mean, you ever look at these people walking around with these masks? <laughs> They're, They're like
0: horrible looking, aren't they?
1: <laughs> the beaky <masks>.
0: ones. <laughs>
1: yeah, they, they take away the most... Important facet of our expressive abilities, our faces. I mean, these are quintessentially human. These are what gets, these are how we communicate, how we show our vitality, especially with kids. You know, so you become anonymous. Listen, there's a reason why uh, train robbers wore masks and bank robbers wore masks. Okay. They conceal their identity. So you render everybody unidentifiable. They turn into digits. They turn into nameless, faceless figures. And that is a terrible psychological blow, but it's a masterful one from a propagandist perspective.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. Um, You can see, uh, thinking this way, you can see why the mask was, or mask wearing was pushed so hard because they, whoever they are, know that that's the key to it, right? That's actually the, the single biggest key to compliance.
1: You got it, Paul. Exactly right. That is exactly right. And it's, it's the perfect propaganda tool, really. It's the blunt end of that big barrier, that big battering ram to use against us. And it is, it's disheartening to me to see so many people so willingly fall for this.
0: Yeah, intelligent people. You mentioned the um, uh, what, former colleague, was it, in the supermarket that you saw. Um, you know, these are supposedly bright people. And this is the other thing I think people are scratching their heads over. How how do you have, you know, working-class people who figured this out, you know, who yeah. bricklayers who figured this all out and made their decision and, and kept away from the whole thing and, and saw through it, let's say. But then you've got, you know, almost rocket scientist level Buying the whole thing. It's weird.
1: Well, no, yeah, it isn't weird because these, I, I made a mistake by saying highly intelligent people. I should okay. have said uh, highly educated people in the system, people who've gotten their little badges uh, by having gone through the system. Okay. Doesn't mean you're intelligent. These tradespeople can see through a bunch of BS, they know what's right. They you have common sense. And in fact, You ask a a tradesperson is responsible for his or her job. They're supposed to fix a sink. They got to fix it, and it's got to be fixed. They're going to fix a roof. The roof has to work so it doesn't leak, right? These other supposedly highly intelligent people who've gotten all these degrees, if they make a mistake, well, so maybe somebody doesn't read their article or who knows what. They're so divorced from what's real and what's practical that they do not know how to think critically. And I think our educational system is certainly not, not encouraging people to think critically.
0: Like it's not, these, it's not those, just us, though, is it? I mean, this is a phenomenon what, across the Western world, or is it even further than that? seems to be a, a similarity across you know, different uh, countries, different, slightly different cultures. Same thing.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And you remember, you got a big, I'm in Wellington, Wellington region, you got a big bureaucratic culture in Wellington, which is really, uh, it's very, very hard to take because these people are in these ministries and committees and whatever. I don't know what they spend their time doing except making each other feel good in management training courses, but they are so divorced from reality that it's pathetic.
0: Uh, it's scary. And still, you have this morning in the news. Dr. Michael Baker, epidemiologist, expert. They keep calling them experts. Um, And he's saying, keep on wearing masks. After everything that's been said, he's still doing it. Well, what that says is that
1: he's just following orders from somebody, okay? Because the. So he's a
0: liar. He's a liar. Let's call it he's a liar. He's a
1: fraud. He's a hoax. He's a fraud. He's an embarrassment. He's a disgrace. He has no right to go on any platform. Well, he has a right to say anything he wants. I believe in free speech, but he has no
0: authority to say these kinds of things. But he's amplified by the media. They're still reporting him. They still refer to him as an expert. Here you go. Well, whose fault is that? Do you think the media outlets are not
1: propaganda these days? I mean, really? Really? My my yeah. biggest thing, people talk about this concept of mass formation, mass formation psychosis. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's who sort of divorced me now because I, we have different opinions, friend of about 40 years. He, he doesn't like my opinions. All right. His reality, Paul, is NBC, ABC, CBS, or now MSNBC, Fox mm-hmm. News, not even Fox News, whatever. His reality. He, he watches TV, mainstream TV, about eight hours a day. So that's his reality. So whatever they say is reality. So no, he's not psychotic. He's not delusional. He's just living in that created reality. And that's how they get people.
0: Yeah, here in New Zealand, um, a lot of that media is state media so you know
1: it's for promoting uh, all their narrative with coronavirus too
0: okay so back to the medical council and you know the nastiness and you know we we talked about earlier on that well i asked you if you thought that had been coming for a while or it suddenly just snapped and, and came out of nowhere how do you explain you know the psychology of okay there's People thinking that they're on a mission to save everyone and, you know, that uh, the, the medical community is going to be the savior. I get that. But why get so nasty? Why, why behave in that way to your colleagues who are, you know, well-qualified and done their time, uh, some of them, you know, incredibly well-qualified, to dismiss them so easily? What, what's, what's driving that, do you think, you know, you know in, in their heads? The nastiness.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's a very, again, a very astute question. Uh, I'm enjoying your questions very much because you really get into some of the depth of this. You know, in any situation, you know, we're all comprised of good and evil, really. Let's put it basically. We all, a lot of us have a lot of good. We also have a lot of other things as well. These situations tend to bring out, we can bring. they bring out the nastiness in people, this issue of control. And I think a lot of people rogue that control train and really relish this ability to just be vicious and sadistic and cruel.
0: Well, like looking now, for an opportunity, you, just looking I'll for I'll an opportunity.
1: I'll give you a great example. This, the ex, the then Director General of, of Health, Ashley Bloomfield.
0: Sir, know, some, sorry, Manuel. Uh, 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 it's sir now. You gotta put the uh, sir oh, on the front well, because well, he was yeah, rewarded, remember?
1: Uh, yeah, anyway, whatever it is. Um, a, an acquaintance of mine, after the first jab, had myocarditis that was so severe, he could barely walk across his lounge. I'm not kidding, okay? He's a health practitioner. He went to a a private cardiologist to see him. The cardiologist supported his not getting any further jabs because he was afraid he would die, basically. OK, so he supported an exemption. And this is in the area when they, made, this is when they made those exemptions as difficult to obtain as hen's teeth. OK, the cardiologist wrote on behalf of his patient, health practitioner, to say he cannot have any more jabs. Bloomfield counter, countermanded that. This is during the mandates. Bloomfield did not allow an exemption for this person.
0: How if do you we, never
1: saw this person. How, how, do, we ex- how, how do you explain, explain it? that? Well, you tell me how you explain it.
0: Well, I would say, I'm sorry to say, that's evil, actually. Yeah. I, I can't think of any other word, and if, it, if it's not, I don't know what is.
1: How could, how could a doctor, a real doctor, in the face of someone who's, who may have a life-threatening event after another of these interventions not just err on the side of caution, say, you know what, let's just...
0: Do, do no harm.
1: Do no harm. I'll give you another example. There's a, a GP uh, in the area contacted me, oh, this is quite a while ago, back in 2021. And I won't, I won't even mention the gender of this person because it might, it might, I don't want to reveal anything, but this person had a stroke a week after the first jab. Okay? This person was very, very upset. Now, the the, the person had some other existing conditions and whatnot, et cetera. Uh, And the person was going to file a complaint and do all kinds of things, was afraid to lose the job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At least this person was awake to what, what could happen. Well, it turns out about six months later, I saw this person, and the person was wearing a mask, and told me he, she was terrified. And I said, what are you terrified of? I said, at, first of all, he, she asked me how I felt. I said, I'm sick of all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. The person was terrified because that person had gotten an exemption, had gotten no further jabs, and was so worried about not being fully jabbed. So this person went from someone who suffered a serious adverse event that was at the very least contributed b- to by the jab to a person who is, who bought everything
0: hook, line and sinker. So that wasn't enough to override the buying of the message. So yeah. that message is what's so well thought out, so cleverly delivered, deployed, or are we, Does it say more about the individual? I'm I'm just curious.
1: Well, I I met another guy. I met a a guy uh, about six months ago. I hadn't seen him for about 10 years, an old friend. And he goes, oh, Manny, how are you? Good. He goes, yeah, you know what? I had a heart attack. He said, oh, my gosh, really? And then I said, I, I bit my tongue. I said, hey, did you by any chance get the jab? Oh, yeah, I got the jab the week before. He had made no connection.
0: All right. Wow. It just, you just keep hearing this. And and there's a lot of these stories.
1: And then, Paul, let me go to something else, too, okay, with honest governments and transparency. An honest government would show us the agreement with Pfizer. There's nothing sensitive about that, okay? They can redact whatever things they have to redact. Let's see what that agreement says. We deserve, we pay for it, taxpayers.
0: We printed money for it, actually, and created inflation. For it.
1: Created all kinds of we put. We've gone into debt over this then, probably. But an honest government would also do autopsies on people who are dying within a certain period after receiving a relatively new medical intervention. Would they not? Uh,
0: not if you've got something to hide. Not if you've got something to hide.
1: So there's a lot to hide, and anytime people are hiding something or censoring something. I mean, when was when the last time you knew that censorship did something good? No, I don't know. I can't, I can't think of anything that censorship really helped. When, but, all, but I'll go back to the doctors, too. I, I, honestly, Paul, out of the 20,000 doctors in New Zealand, wherever many there are, 18, 20,000, okay, I think, you, what, you've got, you got maybe 50 or 100 made a peep in some way about this stuff? What if 5% of those 20,000 said, you know what? We are gonna insist on informed consent. We're gonna insist on proceeding cautiously. There's no way that something like this, which is not stood the test of time, should or could be mandated for everybody. If 5% of the people in my profession had come forth, we could have stopped this dead in the tracks. The government would have had too formidable uh, a power to deal with, except what they did do through their medical council, directed by maybe the Federation of State Medical Boards or their international arm, is let's nip this in the bud. Anybody who says anything like this this creepy Dr. Garcia, whoever he is, what, what right does he have to say? Talk about natural immunity and treatment and not to be so fearful of everything, et cetera, et cetera, get them. And so they did. They went after people like me, Matt Shelton, Alison Goodwin, Peter Kennedy, right away. And they sent the message saying, you want to keep your job? Keep your mouth shut. And in fact, when it comes down to the jab, we're going to give you plenty of financial incentives so that the more you jab, the more you're going to make and that's you you ask a tradesperson that you know if I'm right or wrong on that.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, the money side of it because it seemed to me if you mix that with the the benefits of the vaccine pass, remember when that came in. The selling of that was all about things that you would miss out on, which kind of defined, you know, the sort of one-dimensional. A view of life. You you can get into a restaurant, you can go to a show, you can see a movie, and um, and you can travel around the place. Those are the hot button issues for the average person, I guess, or the aspirational person. If they think they're having an enjoyable life, they want those things, and and that really worked. That pushed the button. Then you mentioned, you know, the remuneration coming back for uh, delivering the jabs. I mean, that's more turnover. That's more money. You, you, you're doing better. That, that what I would call greed points, points of greed, they were leveraged, weren't they, on purpose? Well, must be. Well,
1: yes, they were leveraged on purpose, and it goes beyond that. What if they told you you couldn't work unless you got the jab?
0: Well, and there's that. I know
1: plenty of people. I know plenty of people who got these things very reluctantly because they think they thought they had no choice. They had kids to raise, single mothers, They had jobs as nurses to keep. And I also know brave people who said, no, I don't care what, I don't care, I'm going to lose my job. I gave up my job, okay, so before the mandates came in, but I gave my job up because I would never take this thing. I know two psychiatrists in the the area, two really good psychiatrists, Paul, and there's a dearth of psychiatrists in New Zealand who were terminated because they refused to get this jab. They're healthy people. They take care of themselves, uh, and that that took beyond enticement and seduction. Oh, you can go to the theater. You can get your hair cut, and don't worry. Yeah, about that's about right, The
0: haircut that was big.
1: Yeah, don't worry about those dirty, unjabbed low who who you know aren't playing ball, who are going to make you sick because they're they're dangerous. It's crazy stuff, right? But they took away people's livelihoods as well.
0: Yeah, and, and people were happy about that. A lot of people were happy about that. Is that a natural human thing to, to feel, want to feel superior? Like, like you know, we're, we're, we've all got it potentially. It's just lurking there. When it, the opportunity comes along, we'll, we'll, we'll grab it, and we'll really enjoy feeling superior.
1: Well, let me put it this way. Yeah, we all like to feel superior. You know, there's that, there's that phrase, Bellschmerz, uh, uh, in German, you know, which is you, feel, you sort of feel if somebody else is doing badly, you feel better, right? Right. Yeah. Kind of a natural thing. However, as good good civilized people, Paul, you don't you don't relish, you don't revel in these feelings. You may admit them to yourself, oh my neighbor, I got a bigger car than my neighbor. Oh, I'm, I'm better. It's that's infantile. It's selfish. As civilized people, we want to we want to be good, don't we? We don't want to exclude people from society.
0: Well, the prime minister said it on camera. She she, she yeah. did so, and and everybody, a lot of people thought, yeah. Well, that's that's fair enough. Again, from your professional view, there's got to be so much damage from this, not only physical, but you know, mental health damage. And we've already got a mental health crisis, so you know, it makes great sense to to turf out you know professionals in that area. Boy, that that really works. No, I okay, I, I wonder. Is there a tsunami of really quite bad mental health issues on a scale that we haven't seen before, you know, about to become another wave of the problem? And how bad could they be? At what scale? Any ideas on that?
1: You know, well, we have, the, we have to worry about the physical problems that are happening. People are getting sicker. People are dying in excess already. So we have evidence that... Uh, Things aren't going so well generally in a physical way, but I I believe these past three years have been traumatic for virtually everybody. The lockdowns were traumatic, the social distancing stuff, social quote-unquote distancing was absolutely ridiculous, all of this. I don't know, I, I, I guess the side effects we're going to see or the adverse consequences of uh, maybe more difficult in the mental health sphere because the anxiety levels uh, are generally high with uh, social problems, with food prices, with basically just living. But I don't think it's a way to build a good, strong society, to beat them into submission with fear for three years and hold that emergency thing over their heads now, which is still there legislatively. Hmm. Uh, And then to have changed the way we interact with people and we think about people. You know, in a way, there, there are some very deep divisions now. There are people uh, who won't talk to other people and won't even associate with other people if they have uh, been a on the, on the side of freedom or, uh, or whatever. You know, I've seen a lot of that happen. I don't know. So my answer is I don't know if there's gonna be tsunami we already have a, a, a pretty difficult situation with the general run-of-the-mill, ordinary psychiatric stuff going on. You add this level of oppression, fear, anxiety, you know. and regret- I, I'm going to say something, Paul. I'm going to say one thing, okay, if you don't mind, which is that you're in the midst of a crisis of danger, right? You're, let's say you're a leader. You, Paul are leading a group, a group of villagers, townspeople in the midst of a crisis. Wouldn't it be nice if the leader, instead of the leader saying, get into your homes, be afraid, be very afraid because this thing we're, we're gonna, you know, just let's just whatever. Or would you want a leader who says, you know what? We're gonna come together. We're gonna beat this thing and we're not gonna be afraid. All we heard for all these three years is fear, 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 fear. What about courage? What about living life? What about, as you say, let's, we're going to put our, our, our best medical and scientific minds together, and we're going to find a treatment for this damn thing, and we're going to live our lives and be a proud, robust nation. Isn't that the kind of leader you want? Would you want Churchill during World War II to say, you know what, go to your basements and pray, and that's all we can do? <laughs>
0: No, I want them saying, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them here, yeah. we'll fight them there, yeah, right. and we will never surrender, is what I want to hear. We'll never
1: surrender. And and, and keep, what is it? keep calm and carry on. That was the slogan they used then. Keep yeah. calm and carry on. Nobody came near to saying anything like that, Paul. What the hell kind of leader is that?
0: What about the anger that could be generated from this, though? I, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who regret what happened to them. They know that at this stage it's... It's well, unless something comes along, people are talking about some things. We had Peter McCullough on here the other day talking about something that, from a Japanese river worm that might help. Um, but, uh, you know, they can't undo what they've done. And particularly those who felt coerced to do it, as you were mentioning before mortgages, kids at school, et cetera, that could generate a lot of anger. And I guess my worry, and probably the worry of other people, is that that could break out and become destabilizing in an already destabilized situation. What do you think the potential for that is? Well, if it destabilizes people into
1: voting for a better government, I say, go, go ahead, that's a good thing. You know, we were at Parliament, not one of those members in Parliament came down and I, I asked them every time I spoke in the steps of Parliament, I invited them to come and just talk with us. Not one person came down to speak to engage in a dialogue, okay? Not one person. So what does that tell you about that government? So yeah, we should destabilize them to the point of re- of electing people who are responsive to their constituency, and that's a good thing. The thing I worry about with the anger is that the people get will we so angry at themselves that they can't bear that anger towards themselves and will direct it towards the scapegoats, towards these troublemakers who you know, want freedom and don't want to get the jab and all that kind of stuff. I'm worried about that kind of irrational anger that creates divisions.
0: Well, that's a good point. I mentioned it before, but I had a, um, someone in my family group in sort of debating this. It was almost a heated argument, but I guess to keep it seemingly, I'll, I'll say it was a debate, Who, whose final position was, we shielded you. We shielded you from this. And you're ungrateful we did the work, you didn't. And I thought, well, that's the perfect way to for, for someone in that situation to think about it. And, and that turns the blame around, let's say. So it could be that the, the people who had nothing to do with their choice could end up being blamed for it. If people think that way.
1: Yeah. They shielded us. It's another version of the mask. They shielded us. Actually, How when in the first time for the first time in history, when when has a healthy person been regarded as a potentially lethal danger to somebody
0: else? Last two years.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's crazy. It's absurd. Be healthy. And I always said, if you're sick, stay home. Right. That's the best thing you could do. If you're sick, don't, don't go to work if you're sick. Stay home, but healthy people aren't a danger to other people. In fact, you can argue on the other side that all these people who've gotten all these jabs and are shedding all over the place—that maybe they're they're not good for us who have avoided that stuff.
0: Well, I, I think we have a right to know: um, is there a risk to us from from that? I mean, that's fair enough. I don't want to. I, I don't want to be caught yeah. caught up in a risk because somebody did something and followed the propaganda and burned their brains out on it. I don't want to carry that risk. I, I would like to know.
1: Well, good luck. I don't think any, I think <laughs> there have been a few studies looking at shade and shedding and all that, but I, I, you know what I'm going to say too, also, which is that even if there's a risk and listen, so many people have gotten this jab. Okay. And we're going to, unless we only associate we who are unjabbed only associate with those who are unjabbed, um, we're going to be exposed and I'm going to get back to living life. we got, at some point we got to get back into thinking that we're here to live and enjoy life and to work, be productive and not be afraid. We've had it. We've had a pandemic of fear. I never knew so many fearful. I never knew People were so cowardly before Paul.
0: No, neither did they, I. They Good point. Their own
1: shadows. I'll give you one example. You like, you like this. It was during one of the lockdowns. I forget. I, I would go to my local, um, uh, playground and shoot some basketball hoops. Okay. So as it turns out, a uh a doctor in the neighborhood and his wife walked by and they saw me and you know they said hello and all that. But they managed to walk and another they managed to jump 12 feet out of the way. They were already 12 feet away from me, but they had to jump another 12 feet out of the way just to be safe. And I was so emblematic of these really, this is, this is really stupid and cowardly, really.
0: It's embarrassing, actually. I feel, feel embarrassed for people who did that. Um, it's, a, it's not a good look. Okay, so um, I, I've asked quite a few people that uh, talking about this, this matter, this little matter, um, about accountability as well, because, you know, you can't do all this. And th- this is the medical council as well. You can't do all this and get away with it.
1: Kenya. Well, that's why, that's why we're having this program. I'm going to bring, you know, the best advertisement to people about the, the, uh, the, the, the terrible uh, viciousness of this corrupt medical council is to look at these doctors who, have been, who are being persecuted. Bring them to the public. They're good people. They're nice people. They're people you like to be friends with. They're people I've become friends with. They're people who are trying to do good. Why would an organization go after such good people? Okay? And, in fact, we did a show with Merrill Nass with Children's Health Defense last week, talking again about the Medical Council and the Federation of State Medical Boards and all that.
0: And you're saying there's a different yeah. link there? There's a different link, because that, that's an American institution, isn't
1: it? Yeah. The, the, the chief executive of the Medical Council is the chair-elect of the, uh, I think it's the IAMRA, yeah, of the International Association of Medical Regulatory Agencies, which is this, the international arm of the FSMB. It's a little complicated. And Curtis Walker is the chair of the medical councils on one of the committees of the FSMB. Yeah, there are definite links. Okay. So that organization has wide tentacles in the state boards of medicine in the states and in the medical councils worldwide, Ireland, New Zealand, all over the place. Why?
0: Yeah, well, there seems to be a lot of sort of hookups along the way that <laughs> you drill into it. But, um, you know, there's a there's a commission of inquiry that's been announced. I think uh, there's going to be some political pressure. Some of the policies of the more minor parties are going to call for widening of the terms of reference, et cetera, because it's clear they've excluded things that I don't want to talk about so much. Um, to put this to bed, given everything that's happened, I mean, you talk about Ashley Bloomfield. If he, if he refused an exemption for someone, and we don't know this, but, you know, that had the ultimate thing happen because they went one step further when they shouldn't have, I mean, he should be, he should be done for that, tried, right? Yeah. I mean, that's should be justice, man. He should be held
1: accountable, just like the, uh, uh, the Nazi doctors were held accountable in Nuremberg. And I know people are going to say, oh, you can't make that comparison. Well, you know what? Uh, Holocaust survivor Vera Sharath has indeed made that comparison. We are in terrain that is goes right back to the 30s. You're forcing people to get something experimental. You're violating the integrity of their body, your soul. You're coercing people. You're lying to them. I mean, come on, Paul. Yeah. And you're, you're supposed to be preserving, you're the institution that's supposed to be protecting the public and preserving our health and all that other stuff.
0: Yeah, well, see, this is the problem. I can only speak for myself. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will agree. The trust has been broken. Now I'll never look at a medical professional the same way again. I'll never trust what they say on face on face value. Fake, yeah, fake face value. Um, uh, unless I-, I will grill them on informed consent, like they've never seen before. And I'm even starting to, you know, have problems with with believing in in the current sort of medical system. You know, uh, it, it stripped it all right back.
1: Well, Paul, maybe the great silver lining in all of this is that it's exposed what was wrong in the previous system, right? I've I've lost trust. I've, in fact, I agree with you. I've I've lost trust. Certainly lost trust in all of these institutions, and in all of these doctors who have stayed in the shadows. I'm not going to trust these people. Maybe we're. Maybe it's time for a new system to develop. A system based more on communality, on people uh, pooling resources, helping each other, and getting away from an autocratic kind of top-down approach to anything involving health. And I'm going to write an article about that. I've got some ideas in mind, but I'm all for that. And yes, you should know, you know, when, when a person saw me in psychiatry and I might recommend a treatment, I encourage their questions. What do you want to know about this? We're doing this because of that. Here are the risks. Here are the benefits. That was my daily job. I did that every day, dozen times a day, okay? All of a sudden, that doesn't, we don't have to do that anymore. Apparently, that's out the window. It, it, they've really subverted what should be the core of our professionalism.
0: It's been really interesting talking with you, Emmanuel. Thank you for giving us some time. Wow, what a ride it's been, eh? <laughs> well,
1: what thank a ride. you. Actually, it you're a really great guy to talk to. I can see why you're so popular.
0: Oh uh, well, that, thank you. Really, um, nice. but uh, I mean, we we need to. I, I say this too. We we do need to clear the air, don't we? It need we need to clear the air, and you can only clear it by exposing everything to the light.
1: Yeah, by talking, talking to people, exposing things, and the other thing is, we need. What's wrong with a debate or a courteous debate, civilized debate between people of different opinions? Let's bring them out, you know, but that's that's gone. That's also gone by the wayside. Nobody wants to have a courteous exchange. And that's essential to any functioning democratic country. Any well, that's
0: been lost. That's been pretty well lost, actually. We have to bring that
1: back for That's got to mm-hmm. come back. And I think you're doing it, which is great. We need to talk. We need to talk through our differences courteously. We need to get yep. pe- information out into the open.
0: Yeah. So Dr. Emmanuel E. Garcia, um, okay. physician, retired psychiatrist, and uh, what, you're taking it easy these days? <laughs> you got a bit of time on your hands lately?
1: Um, I got, um, I'm busier than I've ever been, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, all kinds of stuff. But um,
0: Thanks for coming on the program. appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Paul. RCR with
0: Paul Brennan. Reality
1: Check Radio.